Proverbs chapter 31. The Lord would have it by His providence that you just had a verse quoted to you from this chapter by a young man who's found himself a wife to marry in a few weeks. You had quoted to you by him, Proverbs 31 and verse 10, Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. Few have found a virtuous woman. And those that have know that they have something special and something for which to be very thankful. What I want to deal with for a few minutes is the subject of when a wife should disobey her husband. Or, I've entitled it, when your fool, when your husband's a fool. Some men, many men, are fools some of the time. Some men are fools all the time. And poor, the poor women who are married to such fools. That's why being a father is such a responsible position because it's a father's responsibility to help his daughter find a wise man that fears the Lord. We have studied earlier today the subject of God's holiness. And what we want to deal with now are holy women. The verse that we use the most from Proverbs chapter 31, because it's the most descriptive, is in verse 30. Verse 10 that we've already quoted says, Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? But we need to answer the question, what is a virtuous woman and how is she defined? And how is she described? And she is defined and described by the 30th verse. Favor is deceitful. And beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. That is the priceless woman. That is the great woman. Proverbs 31, 30. When it says favor is deceitful, a woman that does things for her husband, or a woman that does things for the man she hopes will be her husband, does not prove anything. In fact, it's very deceitful. A woman that only fears her husband, that is no good woman. That's nothing. Because it's very deceitful. A woman who does favors and who does the things a man wants her to do in order to get married can easily deceive him. It's not a measure of character. A woman that's afraid of her husband is not a measure of character. A woman that obeys her husband is not a measure of character that matters in a Christian marriage. It goes on to say that beauty is vain. A beautiful woman. And how many men have set their eyes on a beautiful woman as if that's the end to the pursuit of a Christian wife? And that is, according to this passage, vain. Favor is deceitful. Because what a woman does can influence you to marry her when that is not a true indication of her character. And beauty is no indication of character. Because it's vain. It does not tell what is on the inside. A woman that is beautiful on the outside may be most corrupt on the inside. And a woman that's beautiful on the outside is going to lose that luster as time goes on. And so your wife, your marriage becomes less and less with the passage of time. So it's vain to put your stock in either favors or beauty. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. That is the great Christian wife. That is the kind of woman every man wants to look for. A woman that fears the Lord. A woman that feareth the Lord. Not a woman that fears her husband. Not a woman that fears her father. A woman that feareth the Lord. Because when the going gets tough, you want a woman that is going to do everything in her marriage that God has told her to do because of her fear of Him. That is a great woman. And we want our girls to grow up to be this kind of a woman. That you fear the Lord above all else. We are uncomfortable. And we do not want to give you to a man to be your husband until you fear God above 
any other man, including your father or your husband, and until you love God more than you love any man, including your father or your husband. We want your fear and love of God to exceed your fear or love of any other person. This means that you'll be a good wife. Because you will do what God says that you should do as a wife, because He says so in His Word, and you fear and love Him, and you want to do what He has said. The subject is simple. Part of me is disappointed we even have to address it. But in order to encourage and strengthen the faith and resolve of our sisters, of our married women, and of our girls, we want to go over this very quickly again. Should a wife obey God or her husband in a matter of sin? The issue is so simple, the question answers itself to anyone that fears God and knows anything about the Bible. And all that matters in an issue like this is not what we think, not what we've reasoned out, but what God has revealed. I've said this earlier today. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The Word of God is sufficient to give us all the answers to living perfectly before the Lord. We do not rationalize about situations. If we're to take a marriage and start to think through it, well, what if he does that? What if the wife does oppose him? Then this could happen. All that kind of reasoning is foolish, vain, and profane because you're going against the Word of God. All that we want is thus saith the Lord, and that is where we're going to rest our case. We believe in revelation, not rationalization. Revelation is when God reveals something to us out of the pages of Holy Scripture. Rationalization is when we try to reason through it from our own understanding. And there's a huge difference between the two. We want what God has revealed. The two difficulties that, that come up and why we have to even address this subject is intimidated women and insecure men. An insecure man can't handle the thought of a wife having a higher authority. But a secure man wants his wife with that higher authority, knowing that if his wife fears God and loves God more than she fears and loves him, she's going to be a better wife than if she fears and loves him the most. We want women like that. That's an insecure man that can't handle that. A secure man can handle that. He wants his wife to be that way. A godly man wants his wife to fear God more than she fears him and to love God more than she loves him. And then intimidated women who either by upbringing in their families, upbringing by tradition, or the years that they've had with their husbands have been intimidated into thinking that there isn't ever a place for a wife to resist her husband in a matter of sin. I'm not talking about little tiny preferences or matters of liberty. And I'll get to that in a second to show you from the Bible that matters of liberty are not what we're talking about. We're talking about matters of sin. All men are fools sometime. And some men are fools all the time. What's a woman to do? The Bible has the answers. It's wonderful. And it should be wonderful to be married to a Christian man who's living like a Christian. But it can be a great trial of faith for a woman to be married to a fool. There have been authors that have confused this subject, and because we live in Greenville, South Carolina, there is an author that lived in this city who was the wife of the pastor of the largest Baptist church in this city that wrote a book entitled, Me, Obey Him. And in that book, Elizabeth Rice Hanford, a daughter of John R. Rice and the wife of Pastor Hanford of the old Southside Baptist Church, taught two things. A woman is bound to obey her husband, period. A woman is bound to obey her husband absolutely and unconditionally because God will hold the husband responsible for any sin that the wife does in obedience to her husband. There's a family in this city that believes we are the closest to the truth of any church in this city, and for many, many years has refused to come here because we don't hold that position. They are so committed to it. 
Elizabeth Rice Hanford went on to say that God in His dealings with men and women in marriage will never put the woman in a situation where she has to make a choice between God and her husband. Well, now bless her heart. Those are sweet little thoughts, but they're not based in the Bible. And many women have read that book. It's been printed thousands and thousands of times, but that is not the truth of God's Word. We want women that fear God and who understand that the Bible gives illustrations of some women that did have to make a choice between God and their husbands. We want the very godliest marriages and families in our church. But we're going to only measure them by one standard. The Bible. What does the Bible say? We want great women as our wives. And we want great girls in this church to grow up to be great wives. And we want them to fear and love the Lord God of heaven more than they do their husbands. We shouldn't have to say in this church that we believe that wives are to obey husbands. Because we have taught that plainly. But let's just state the fact for those that might be ignorant of it. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, God told Adam, God said that it wasn't good for him to be alone. I'll make and help meet for him. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, that position of the woman under the, under Adam was made even more stringent and severe because she sinned in listening to the devil and eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in that place, the Lord said, your desire shall be to your husband and he will rule over you. And so the position was created in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 that women were to obey their husbands and their husbands were to rule over them. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says that the woman was made for the man, not the man for the woman. These things we believe, these things we teach. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. When a woman is submitting to her husband, she's submitting to the Lord because the Lord is the one that has set up the roles of husband and wife in a Christian marriage. We don't care what Diana Spencer did in 1981 in her marriage to the Prince of Wales in England when she took out the words, obey him, from her wedding vows. You know, wedding vows used to include the words that I promise to obey him. And those words are often taken out of vows now because women do not want to hear those words, though they're found in the Bible. The words come from Titus chapter 2, where the older women are to teach the younger women to be obedient to their own husbands. That's a Bible precept. We still believe it. We're still old-fashioned. We do not care that so-called Christians having marriages today call them a partnership and neuter the husband. We don't believe that. We believe that God made the woman for the man. Her desire is to be to her husband. That means his desires overrule hers. And so she ends up living his and he's to rule over her. Bible teaches it. She submits to him. She is to reverence him. This is the word of God. We believe it. We're not going to change it. We're going to stand by it. And no matter what I say today, it's not going to undo that at all. All we're going to look at are those exceptions where a woman is bound by her faith and fear of God to obey Him rather than her husband. All authority is ruled by God. Every sphere of authority that we find in the world, the God of heaven ordained it, and it came from Him. Therefore, He dictates its terms. And because it came from Him, He is the ultimate authority. He established authority spheres in life to help this world get along comfortably. Therefore, children come into the world under parents. They're to obey their parents. They're to honor their parents. And the parents, on their part, have responsibilities to take care of them. And when both rules or commandments of God are kept, wonderful families result. As you get older and you get a job, servants are to obey their masters. Or we could say employees are to obey their employers. But on the other hand, employers are told how to treat their employees. And so we have a business world that works together well because God gave ordinances to both sides of that authority structure. When a woman enters into marriage, she was made for the man, as the Bible says, she's to submit to him and to obey him, and he is to love and take care of her and nourish her and cherish her. 
And so when a husband and a wife do that toward each other, in obedience to the Bible, the way the Bible says to do it, they have a happy marriage. As we get together in societies, God has ordained that some are made magistrates or rulers over political entities like a nation, or a county, or a state, or a city, or a township. And in each of those cases, we are to obey every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, because God ordained it. God ordained authority, but He is the ultimate authority. And when anyone in authority, whether it be a parent, or a husband, or a master, or a ruler, tells you to do something that God has forbidden, or will not let you do something God has commanded, then you are to disobey that authority. The apostles put it so well, we ought to obey God rather than men. Look at Acts chapter 4, and let's see them reason through. The Bible is so full of examples on this point, but let's go right after one of the plainest ones. Asa was king. His mother was queen. She was an idol worshiper. What did Asa do to his mother? He deposed her. He took her out of being a queen. You say, that's not honoring your mother. It might not be honoring your mother. It's honoring God. Asa did that to honor God because his wife, his mother was an idolatrous woman. When King Saul was trying to kill David, and the excuse was given that David was sick, when King Saul sent messengers to David and Michael's house, Michael being his daughter, what did they find in the bed? A bolster making it look like David was in bed because David was running away from the city to save himself. Michael had chosen to disobey her father, King Saul, in order to preserve life. Examples like that throughout the Bible. A child should obey and should honor their parents in all cases and in all decisions except where those parents try to get a child to do something that God has forbidden or will not let a child do what God has commanded. And it better be very plain and very clear before a child defies a parent. But as a child becomes older and realizes that God has said certain things, a child is to obey God rather than men. The apostles faced that same predicament. In Acts chapter 4, they are threatened. Verse 18, the rulers of the Jews. They called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now notice, the apostles were not giving the rulers of the Jews something new. This was a principle that everyone understood that had been taught from a Bible. That it was more important to obey God than men. And so they just asked them a rhetorical question. Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. You go ahead and answer how we're going to respond to your threat. You go ahead and figure it out. That we ought to obey you more than we obey God. That we should hearken to you more than to God. You figure it out. The apostles were bold. And you know what? The Jews already knew the answer to that question, but they couldn't do anything because the man that had been healed had caused quite a stir. So they threatened them and let them go. But in chapter 5, we have the apostles back in front of these same men. Verse 27. Acts 5, 27. Here are the same rulers. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. From these two passages, we have a clear example that the authority of God is greater than the authority of man. And here we are dealing with the appointed rulers of Israel 
who were those rulers by God's appointment. But God is to obeyed to be obeyed rather than any man in any position of authority. Godly citizens disobeyed ungodly rulers throughout the Bible. In Exodus chapter 1, we read about those wonderful Hebrew midwives. Pharaoh told them to kill the, ba- the boy babies. And the boy babies just kept right on being born. And Pharaoh said, what have you done? And they, they lied to Pharaoh. And they said, well, by the time we get to those Israelite, the Hebrew women, they've already had their babies. We just can't do anything about it. You know what the Bible says about that act of civil disobedience? The Bible says God built them houses and took care of them because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. Amen. How about Rahab the harlot? In come the rulers of her city. Where are those men that came and visited your place? Oh, you're looking for them? Hurry! If you hurry, they went that away, And if you hurry, you might be able to catch them. But they were upstairs. Rahab the harlot. Do you know what the book of James tells us about her? She was justified by that act of faith in obeying God rather than men. Do you know what the book of Hebrews tells us about her? She's in the hall of faith because of that act of faith in obeying God rather than men. Daniel would not eat of the king's fare in Daniel chapter 1 in order to honor his God. And God blessed him abundantly, though he defied Nebuchadnezzar. How about the three Hebrew children? The three Hebrew men. Nebuchadnezzar had his band play, and they were to listen to the praise band and get down and worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they wouldn't do it, so Nebuchadnezzar gave them a second chance. They wouldn't do it, so he heated the furnace seven times hotter than it was wont to be heated. And they said, we are not careful in answering thee, O king. We do not know if our God is going to deliver us today from your fiery furnace. But whether he delivers us or not, we are not going to worship your image. We are not careful. Please remember that word. We are not scared, anxious, or worried about you. We don't know what God's going to do for us. But we know one thing we're not going to do. We're not going to worship your image. That was, those are men of faith. Those are men and women. We've mentioned several women that feared God more than they feared any earthly or human authority. No wife has ever faced a more intimidating prospect than the flames of Nebuchadnezzar's furnace burning the backs of those three men knowing that that's where they were going to be thrown for not bowing down to that image. But they said, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. And what they meant by that is they weren't saying we are being disrespectful. They were saying we are not worried or anxious or fearful about what we're saying. We are, we, our trust is entirely in the God of heaven, and he we will obey. Turn to First Peter chapter 3 with me, and let's look at the case of wives. 1 Peter chapter 3. Let me read the first six verses of this chapter. And notice that in the fifth verse, it describes the women as holy women. So this is holiness. Being in subjection to your husband is a holy thing to do. But obeying God when your husband tries to keep you from obeying him is another holy thing that women can do. Here are holy women described. Verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair, and of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. 
whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Here are wives, primarily those married to unbelieving husbands, because that's what the first couple of verses tell us. And it tells us that those wives should be in subjection to their unbelieving husbands, that those unbelieving husbands might be one without the Word. They could be converted by the wonderful lives of their wives. It says in verse 2, "...while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear." From verse 1, they're to be in subjection. From verse 2, they're to be pure and holy, a chaste life, and they're to do it with fear, coupled with fear. They're to have a fear of their husband, and they're to obey their husband, and be in subjection to him. And by so doing, and doing it in a good way, their husbands can be one. And that is the hope held out in these two verses. The same hope is held out in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And then we have verses 3 and 4 that tell these wives, Christian wives, don't let the emphasis of your life be on the outward appearance. Make the emphasis of your life the inward appearance, the inward man, the spirit that you have inside you. Let it be meek and quiet and let that be flowing through you as the attitude that you convey towards your husband. Let it be that hidden man of the heart in verse 4. That is never corruptible. A woman at 20 or a woman at 70... They can be as beautiful as each other in what God considers incorruptible and what God considers to be of great price. A great woman that is meek and quiet, which is the spirit that is described here, is in the sight of God of great price at any age. Beauty fades, but holiness and chasteness does not. An older woman can be as beautiful by her submissive, meek, and quiet spirit and the reverent way that she treats her husband. But we come forward to verse 5. Because it was in this manner, after this manner, in the old time, in the Old Testament, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Notice that the emphasis in verse 5 is, the women of the Old Testament, the great women, adorned themselves not with their outward appearance, not with hair, Not with accessories, not with clothes, but by being in subjection to their husbands in a good way. They were submissive, they were meek and quiet. And so those were holy women, and they adorned themselves with their spirit, not their clothing. It's little girls that still have little minds, and who read Seventeen magazine, and who shop at the mall, that think guys are impressed by what they put on the outside. Any young man who's a prince, who knows the Word of God, and who has ever spent any time talking to men, is not looking for what's on the outside. He is looking for what's on the inside, as verses 4 and 5 describe. The true adornment. A whining, morose, unhappy, critical, negative person. They can die single. A girl that doesn't want to have a meek and quiet spirit doesn't want to have a thankful and cheerful and joyful spirit, she can die single. She can die lonely. She can live her life lonely. Real men and real young men are going to look at these verses and say, that's the kind of woman I want. I want a woman that will adorn herself with a meek and quiet spirit. Gracious, agreeable, cheerful, kind, benevolent, helpful, cooperative, gentle, All the wonderful things that make a woman beautiful. This is the word of the Lord. And this is how women in the Old Testament adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands with that meek and quiet spirit. And then we have a specific example given of Sarah. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. When did Sarah obey Abraham? Well, how would you like to wake up this way, women? Sarah? I don't want to live in Ur of the Chaldeans anymore. We're going to move. And we're going to move far away. My Lord Abraham, where are we we going to move? I don't know. We're just going to move. Did Sarah go with Abraham when he left Ur of the Chaldeans? When he got to Haran and his father died and the family was trimmed down to size and Abraham decided to leave Haran 
and come on into Canaan, did Sarah go with them? Oh, yes, she did. When three visitors came to Abraham's tent in the heat of the day, and Abraham knew that they needed to be entertained, and he rushed into the tent and he told her to hurry up. Have you read it? Hurry up! Make, make some cakes for these men so we can feed them. He told her, what, you know what some women today would say? Hey, big guy, you didn't give me any advance notice. You didn't tell me you were going to have company today. Why don't you take them out to eat? It, now you're Chuck. You know, I hope that nobody in here would say anything like that. Or even be able to think it. But you know what? Sarah obeyed Abraham. And she called him Lord. Now, we don't have any of the occurrences where she called him Lord verbally. The only time we know that Abraham, that Sarah called Abraham Lord was in Genesis 18 and verse 12 when she did it in her thoughts. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 12, she has just heard that she's about to have a son in her old age. And she says, am I going to be able to give my Lord Abraham pleasure in our old age? She refers to Abraham as my Lord inside where she's thinking about her husband. That shows quite a woman. And so she's, you know, we have that told to us in the Bible so that we can find it to fill out the sense of 1 Peter 3, 6. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, and she did obey him. She did obey him. Sarah, these Egyptians are going to think you are beautiful. And though it was his weak faith, she followed him in this matter. She said, we're going we're to tell them that you're my sister. Because if they find out that I'm your husband, you, they're, they're probably going to kill me for you. That, is, that was one scary proposition. She did that twice. Right. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, you look just like Sarah. You look just like Sarah as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Two conditions necessary for a woman to be like Sarah. As long as ye do well. And what is doing well according to this passage? Being in subjection to your husband, living a chaste and pure life, emphasizing a meek and quiet spirit, and obeying him through fear of proper fear of him, rather than revolting against him. That makes you like Sarah, who called her husband Lord. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and when a woman obeys her husband, submits to him with a meek and quiet spirit, and reverences him for the office God has given him, and cheerfully does what he asks, she is like Sarah in the first condition, as long as ye do well. The second condition, and are not afraid with any amazement. That afraid there is the fear of a husband. It's already been mentioned in verse 2, where it said, While they behold your chaste conversation... Coupled with fear. They see you living a pure life in subjection to their husbands. But the warning here is that they are not afraid with any amazement. Amazement is the condition of being mentally paralyzed. When you are amazed in the use of the Bible and the English definition of that word, when you are truly amazed, you know, we use the word so flippantly today, it has a much wider meaning than it was ever intended to convey. But to be amazed at something is to be confused. It's to be beyond your senses and your experience to know exactly what you're seeing or the situation that you're in. It's to be confounded. It's to be bewildered. It's to be paralyzed. It's to be stupefied. It's to lose your ability to reason and make decisions. As long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. The fear of a husband should not leave to bewilderment or confusion as to know what you ought to do. Because what you ought to do is obey your husband with a meek and quiet spirit insofar as anything he asks, short of contradicting the authority of God Himself and the Word of God. No man, whether he's a king, whether he's a master, whether he's a father, or whether he's a husband, has the right to try to overthrow God's authority in any relationship. Our obedience should only go as far as God's authority and the Word of God takes us. The fear here is the fear of a husband that would lead a woman to being bewildered or confused. And a woman should not go there. And if she has proper faith in God and fear of God, she won't. What about Sarah? Did Sarah 
ever go against her husband. Genesis chapter 21. In Genesis chapter 21, Abraham has thrown a party for the weaning of Isaac. At that party, Ishmael, who was in his late teens, was mocking little Isaac. Sarah came to Abraham and said, Get that bondwoman and her son out of here. Throw them out of here. The son of the bondwoman is not going to be heir with my son. She knew she had the promised son. She knew she had the son that God was going to bless. And she told Abraham, that boy is not going to be around my son and threaten the promised seed that we have. And do you know what? The words of the God of heaven came down and told Abraham and said, you do as your wife has told you to do. And the thing was very grievous in the sight of Abraham because Abraham loved Ishmael too much. He begged God to let Ishmael be the one to stand before him when God had chosen Isaac. Isaac was still just a little guy, and he had Ishmael as in his late teens because the one was born 14 years before the other. Sarah understood there was a time to stand up for what God had said, and God had said, Isaac is my seed. Isaac is the son of promise. And she saw the threat that was made to Isaac by Ishmael and by Hagar's instigation, and she said the bondwoman and the, and the son of the bondwoman are out of here. And God commended her, and God told Abraham, you follow the advice that you've just heard from your wife, because it's good advice. Now, that didn't mean that Sarah did anything else to Abraham. She continued being a good wife. She continued in every other way of being a good wife. But there was a situation that came to pass in that household where there was a threat to the promised seed, Isaac, and Sarah made a choice about what should be done in that matter. And Isaac, and Abraham did it, and Abraham was blessed, and God comforted Abraham. God told Abraham, don't worry about Ishmael, I'll take care of him, and I'm going to make a great nation of him as well. But Isaac is the one that, that your seed will be called through Isaac. Fear with amazement is like Peter when a maid approached him at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all he could think about was getting out of the situation because he was going to be tortured and crucified like the Savior had been. And so he compromised and he lied. Three times. Fear can do terrible things to men. Peter had just a few hours earlier said that he would follow the Lord even to prison, even to death. And there a few hours earlier, intimidated by seeing what was happening to Jesus Christ and having a maid confront him suddenly, he compromised. He let fear overcome him so that he was bewildered and confused. And instead of holding fast his faith that he had promised to the Lord just a few hours earlier, he caved in. Turn to 1 Samuel 25, another example of a woman. The one we turn to the most often. A whole chapter recorded in the Bible about a woman so that we can have a little more detail to fill out the example of a meek and quiet spirit who submits to her husband and follows him in everything until that husband tries to take her away from the Lord or tries to get her to compromise with the Word of God. If God has commanded something, baptism, church membership, church attendance, then a husband can't undo that. A husband can't keep a wife from doing that because she's got an obligation to God. If the Lord has prohibited us from stealing, thou shalt not steal. And a husband tries to get his wife to steal. Is the, is the issue difficult to figure out what you ought to do? Yes, it could be intimidating because you've got to live in the same house. But there's a wise way of approaching it. And Abigail knew how to do it. And women should know how to do it. By discreetly and respectfully approaching their husbands about such a matter. And we are not talking about where you're going to go for dinner this afternoon. We're not talking about where you're going to go for vacation. We're not talking about what you're going to name the two little girls. Those are all matters of liberty. And while a wise husband is going to take his wife's opinion into consideration, he has the right to rule on all those matters and a million others beside them. But when it comes to things God has commanded, the issue is settled and done. No husband can influence it whatsoever, nor can a father, nor can a master, nor can a magistrate, nor can a king, no matter how supreme. 
1 Samuel 25 tells us about Abigail. Hopefully you've read it. Hopefully you read it last evening. She was a beautiful and wise woman, but she was married to a fool. He was called a churlish man, an overbearing, critical, negative, difficult man. It tells us that in verse 3, the man was churlish and evil in his doings. She was a woman of good understanding and of a beautiful countenance. David has been living in the woods. He's been keeping protection over Nabal's shepherds and their flocks. He hasn't taken advantage of the man. And he knows that it's shearing time in Nabal's house. That was mean all your annual income or much of your annual income was going to come in at shearing time. And so he sends and asks for a little bit of food for his men and himself. He's, the servants are rudely treated by Nabal. And they come back and tell David. And David says, get your swords on. Let's go pay this man a visit. Now, he was doing that in wrath. And bless Abigail, she kept him from staining his own reputation with a sin of anger. But it tells us about Abigail that when she found out what Nabal had done, and when she found out that for sure David was going to be upset by such treatment, here's what she did. Verse 18 of 1 Samuel 25, she made haste and put together a whole pile of food to send to David. And she told her servants in verse 19, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she told not her husband Nabal. Here is a wise woman. The reason we have 1 Samuel 25 is to learn about what a wise woman does when she's married to a fool. And all women, even Christian women, are married to fools sometimes. When we do foolish things, And we want a wife like Abigail that will discreetly and kindly help us back into the way of righteousness. But she didn't tell Nabal. She just went and did opposite of what Nabal had said was going to be done. And so she sent food to David. She met David. She apologized for her husband. She told David, listen, I'm married to a fool. His name is correct. Nabal means a fool. He is a fool. This is in verse 25. Let not my Lord, I pray thee, regard this man of Belial... Even Nabal, she's talking about her husband. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, thine handmaid, saw not the young men of my Lord, whom thou didst send. And she reasons with David, you do not need to go kill Nabal. I have brought you the food. If you stain your reputation by such a sin of murder out of anger, you're going to mess up your own situation in Israel. Don't do that. David heard her. David listened to her, David was converted by her, and David blessed her. In verse 32, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which sent thee this day to meet me, and blessed be thy advice, and blessed be thou, which hast kept me this day from coming to shed blood. She was so much smarter than her husband in this event. What we read about Nabal's life, she was much smarter than her husband in in most or all events, because she was married to a churlish fool that was a man of Belial. But... In this case, she did not do what her husband wanted. She took the food and sent it to David anyway. She snuck out and went and met David, stopped him from coming, sent him back on his way with food, and then she told him in the morning. Verse 36, Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he held a feast in his house like the feast of a king. But he didn't have enough to share with David. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunken. What would a wise woman do if her husband was very drunk? And would she want to tell him right then that she had disobeyed him? Wherefore, she told him nothing, less or more, until the morning light. But it came to pass in the morning when the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And it came to pass about ten days after that the Lord smote Nabal that he died. God didn't smite Abigail for what she did, because what she did was right. God smote Nabal for what he did because what he did was wrong. And God delivered Abigail from Nabal. And and about the time the casket had the vault closed upon it, David's servants were there asking Abigail to marry David. And Abigail said yes. And so ends 1 Samuel 25. It is an example of a woman realizing that something wrong has been done and going against the wishes of her husband and discreetly handling the whole situation. Sending a gift of food to deter David from coming into camp 
reasoning with David in the fear of the Lord about his own reputation, waiting until the next day to tell Nabal about what she had done. And the Lord blessed the whole event. This was a great woman. And we are told she was of good understanding. And then we're told what she did. And we see her good understanding. She saved men from being killed, David from ruining his reputation, and she saved getting into an argument with a drunken man by waiting until the next day. She was of good understanding, and she did those things. What would wise Abigail have done if she had read the book, Me, Obey Him? You know, Elizabeth Rice Hanford said that God never puts a woman in a situation where she has to choose between the Lord and her husband. Really. If you read 1 Samuel 25, then you know that she had to make a choice between the Lord and her husband and the Lord's chosen man for Israel, David. And she made the right choice. Are there other examples? You know, when you think through the Bible and you you try to think of examples, can you think about Zipporah? The Lord has... The Lord has Moses in a death grip. The Bible says the Lord found Moses in the inn on the way back to Egypt and sought to kill him. And who had to do something? Zipporah had to take that little boy and save his life. And then she told him, Behold, thou art a bloody husband unto me, because Moses had not done what he was supposed to have done. Zipporah had to do it. How about Samson's parents? After the angel appeared to Manoah, that's the man, Samson's father, and his wife, and went back to heaven, disappeared out of sight, Manoah said, I'm sure we're going to die. What did Manoah's wife say to him? She, she's so wise. It's, a wonder, it's Judges chapter 13. She says to him, now wait a minute. Why would God have sent his angel to tell us all these wonderful things if his goal was to kill you? There's a woman... Not saying, yes, sir. When the, when the man says, the Lord's going to kill us. That's why he appeared to us like that. Did you see how terrible that angel was? He's going to kill us. Mrs. Sampson's mother did not say, yes, sir. I'll bet you're right. She said, husband, why would God tell us all these wonderful things about the son we're going to have and how we should raise him if he was going to kill us? There are examples like this throughout the Bible. Timothy's father was a Greek and an unbeliever. How was Timothy raised? How was Timothy trained? To be an unbeliever? Trained by Lois and Eunice to be a God-fearing young man, and that's how Paul found him in Acts chapter 16. When should a wife disobey? If your husband orders you to sign a tax return that you know is fraudulent, what are you going to do? You're going to disobey and not sign it. If a husband orders his wife to steal something for him, she should refuse to do that. If a husband asks his wife to watch something, a porn flick on television, or a porn movie, or anything like that, a wife should refuse to do so. A wife must obey God over her husband in anything that contradicts the Word of God. When God commands something like baptism, she should do it whether her husband wants her to or not. The Lord tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. If a husband tries to keep a wife from assembling with the saints, she should obey the Lord and not her husband. If we're talking about one Sunday on the end of a vacation, or we're talking about a Sunday for some other short-term reason, we would consider that a matter of liberty in the way we deal with any member, and a wife should follow her husband. But if a husband tries to keep a wife from the Word of God, from the assembly of the saints, from training the children in the fear of the Lord, a wife has to draw a line and say, God has commanded me to do these things, and I must do them. A wife does not have the right to do that in matters of liberty, and we have a whole chapter in the Bible for that. It's Numbers chapter 30. In Numbers chapter 30, God says that if a woman makes a free will offering to God or a vow to God, and her husband hears it, that day, the day he hears it, he can disallow her vow. The woman will be free. The man will be free. Let's say a woman, for the love of, for the love of God in her heart, wants to take five sheep to Jerusalem and offer them for a sacrifice. 
God hasn't commanded that. It's a free will offering. So we would consider that a matter of liberty. If her husband hears her, I'm going to take five sheep and go to Jerusalem and offer them to the Lord as a free will offering, he can say, no, you're not. I can't afford you to be away for three days right now. I need you home. We can't afford the sheep. You can't do it. She's clean before the Lord. This is all Numbers 30. The whole chapter is dedicated to this topic. And he's free. Now, if he doesn't say something the day he hears it, and all of a sudden, a month later, the wife packs up five sheep and gets the gets the wagon ready to go to Jerusalem, the husband cannot stop her. Numbers 30. Because in the day that he heard it, he did not disallow her vow. He has to let it stand, even though it's a matter of liberty in that case. He has a choice to do it up front and lay out the situation clearly. She has some independence. And if he is being a good husband, he was to rule initially, but he wasn't to let it ride and have her get her hopes up on it and a plan to go worship the Lord and then try to stop it later. Numbers 30 tells us about those are matters of liberty because there's no commandment involved in Numbers 30. You didn't have to sacrifice. These were free will offerings or vows. So we are not dealing with that. We're dealing with matters of sin. How should a wife handle it when her husband wants her to do something wrong or is keeping her from doing something right? Sometimes you don't get the chance, ladies, but usually you will. If possible, she should approach the matter very carefully, cautiously, and soberly in prayer. She should do it very carefully, just like any of us should in going against authority. She should approach her husband in the most discreet and respectful way possible to express her concern that a matter of sin is at stake against the Word of God. We are not talking anything about blowing off at the mouth. A Christian woman never does that. Ever. 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 There are no exceptions. A Christian woman never does that. We are not talking about blowing back against a husband. We are talking about coming very cautiously, very carefully, very soberly, and after prayer and in the most respectful and discreet way possible to express her concern, and she could very well do it by questions, that a matter of sin is involved against the Word of God. If possible and time allows, a woman should hear his answers and listen to them intently as the head that God has given her, and then try them by the Word of God, search the Scriptures to see if they're legitimate, and beg God for wisdom in the matter. I've often suggested the practical value of writing him a letter. If you confront your husband verbally, there is that temptation for a husband to respond hastily and you can't get all your words out. You may not be able to form them properly. Write him a letter where you can get all your words out and where he can read it at a different time and be calmed down before he comes and visits, before he comes home from work. It's just practical wisdom. This is what a wise woman would do. She would discreetly think of every advantage that she can use to still be respectful and kind and try to resolve this thing for the peace of the husband and wife. A woman in a case like this should be doing everything possible to be the best wife in every other area. She should be respectful in giving her husband the full treatment of being a godly and virtuous wife. It should not affect anything else, just the one issue of the matter of sin that's at stake. And before she would ever defy him, she should proceed with questions and exhort him and warn him from the Word of God. The greatest leverage that any woman should have in this church with her husband is the Word of God. The greatest leverage my wife has with me is the Word of God and things that I've taught from it. You've heard the things your husbands have have taught or said from the Word of God. Bring those to bear. Those are the things we believe. And those are the things we believe the most strongly. Bring them to bear and remind us of our duties to fear the Lord. A wife should never explode, threaten, separate, or any other such thing over these matters. Nowhere does the Bible say for a woman to separate because her husband is opposing God in a matter of sin. She should just, in that particular matter, choose to obey God rather than men. Believers and unbelievers are to maintain their marriages and they're to keep peace in those marriages 
as far as they are poss- as as far as they possibly can do it. If the unbelieving spouse doesn't want to live with a perfect Christian woman because she has said that there's one or two or three items that her conscience requires her to obey because they're in God's Word, if he doesn't want to live with her on that basis, then so be it. Let the unbeliever depart. But let her, let him break the marriage, no Christian woman. She looks at that one area and seeks and asks her husband for permission to obey God in that one area, and she is perfect in all other areas. She is in subjection with fear and a chaste conversation with a meek and quiet spirit. Even in that one issue, she approaches him meekly. But they do, we do not separate based on an issue like this. We don't throw a temper tantrum. We don't threaten. We don't do anything like that. A wife should make perfectly clear that all other aspects of the marriage are going to be upheld fully. Abigail did not go home to Nabal and say, I'm sick and tired of you. I'm leaving. Abigail just went home and said, David was coming to kill you. And I sent out a couple hundred dollars worth of groceries to make sure he didn't come and do it. And he's not coming. The Lord killed him ten days later. In his heart, he got to think about that and the coldness crept into his heart. We don't know exactly what the Bible means when it says for ten days his heart was like a stone, but the Lord judged him. We are not in the business of breaking up marriages. However, we are in the business of obeying God over any marriage. And if the unbelieving departs, whether it be a husband or a wife, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. Our goal, though, as women, is to be in subjection to our husbands with chaste conversation, with a meek and quiet spirit, and with wonderful performance as a wife, like Sarah, like the holy women of old, that especially in this church, where you're dealing with converted husbands, if an issue comes up, you can take the Word of God to him cautiously, carefully, soberly, with prayer, meekly, respectfully, maybe writing a letter to do it more easily, and remind him that you have to obey God rather than him. A real man wants a wife like this. A real man fears God and wants a wife that fears God because she can be a help to him by reminding him of things that he may have forgotten or have slipped on himself. We should appreciate that. We should encourage that in our wives. A real man fears God will accept admonition even from his wife if it keeps him from sinning against God. A man that doesn't want to, that does not want to displease God does not care where the correction comes from. He just wants it. A real man will give his wife the liberty to meekly and reverently question or admonish or warn him if she sees him doing something wrong. And I hope that the men of this church will do that. Sisters, your situation can be difficult, but most of you in here are married to Christian men who do fear God. The Bible is your greatest leverage. A holy and virtuous life is your greatest leverage. Those things together, your husband will listen to you by the grace of God if you run into a situation where he's expecting you to do something that's wrong or he's trying to keep you from doing something that God has commanded. These are not matters of liberty. These are the issues of, of holy living before the God of heaven. And if, we're, if we need wives to help husbands maintain holy families and holy households in this church, then more power to them. By the grace of God, let's have holy homes and let's let holy women help encourage us men from time to time when we're acting like little nables to do what is right. Every father has a responsibility to keep his daughter from ever marrying a Nabal. Lord, help us. That is why we want to be cautious and slow in measuring men that come our way because we do not want to give away our precious daughters to a man like Abigail's husband. Let every wife, every woman, maintain her faith, her fear and love of God is the most important relationship in her life. And every husband should encourage that. If you want the greatest wife possible, help your wife love and fear the God of heaven with all her heart. And women, that's what you need to keep at the forefront so that 
if there ever is a conflict, and I hope there never is, but if there is, your faith and fear and love of God is so great, you are not bewildered into amazement or confused. You know exactly what you ought to do. I ought to obey God rather than men. And men, let's cultivate that in our wives. Let's build and help godly women. Let's teach our daughters to be that way. And may the Lord bless us to have godly homes, godly marriages, and holy women that were like Sarah, obeyed, obeyed, and obeyed, but also knew which son was to be the promised son and the the seed son that the Lord Jesus Christ would come through. And the Lord told Abraham, hearken, hearken unto your wife. She's just given you some good advice. And Abigail, the Lord blessed Abigail to marry David and to have a son, Nathan, that brought forth one of the Joseph or Mary that ended up in the lineage legally of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a Timothy that's the result of a Lois and a Eunice who in spite of having an unbelieving father, they taught him the fear of the Lord and they gave him their faith that they had had. May the Lord bless us that way in this church. Some of the situations are difficult. Others are not. If you build your faith day by day, you'll be able to handle the situations that God sends you. May the Lord give us great women and great husbands and honor and magnify Him with holy homes and holy marriages. Amen. Amen.